You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Is he, uh, it's an exclamation point and um, uh, very well said about the, the, the great benefit and joy of serving others. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to go to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. And uh, we're going to pick up where we uh, left off, or almost where we left off last week. And for the last three weeks, we've been looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. As Paul has been writing to this church in Corinth, uh, about uh, generosity, uh, but, but the, the title of, of the whole deal, he says in, in chapter 8, verse 1, is that I'm, I'm telling you about the grace of God. And then he begins to expound and unpack what the grace of God looks like on the street, what it looks like on the street in Macedonia, and what he prays that it will look like on the street in Corinth. And so to begin the morning, I want to uh, remind some of you of a, of a song uh, most of you, some of you would be like, I've never heard that song. And then I would say, shame on you. Go home and YouTube it, all right? Um, I'm not shame on you. I'm not a shamer. Uh, but you, sh- you should know the song. Uh, Tom Schultz is a guy who founded a band uh, back in the 70s. The band was called Boston. He wrote a song in his garage, took him, said it took him five years to write it. It was the biggest hit Boston ever had, more than a feeling. I mean, you can go to the, to the top of the charts, you know, like all, all those, it's, it's on the top of all the charts, this great song, it comes on the radio, you turn it up, and here's the song. I mean, this is what it's about. It's about, it's about a, a love lost, essentially. So he loved this girl, and he let her walk away, and, and so it's years later, and he's, he's discontent, he's despondent. He, re- he regrets what could have been. He says, turn on the music to start the day. Get lost in the familiar song. Close my eyes and slip away. Dream of a girl I used to know. More than a feeling. At the end of the day, he wished, wished for more than a feeling. Now, I'm, I'm sure some of you are going to come or email me and say, that's not what that song's about. Okay. But on one level it is. You know, if we were to uh, if we were to put the passage today to music, Second Corinthians chapter nine and verses one through five, we, the, the Paul's words to, to the Corinthians, we could write a similar song. I mean, we could throw the guitar riffs and drum solo in there, all of that stuff. That's what he's saying to the Corinthians. Hey, listen, I want you to know this deal, this generosity deal, the, the Christian life for that matter. It's more than a, more than a feeling. It's got to be. Catch you up if you haven't been here. Two weeks ago, we started and looked at the first few verses of chapter 8, and we said this that generous lives are an overflow of the grace of God. That, that generosity or a generous life is not something you muster up, it's not something you decide, you know what, I'm going to uh, generous, that's my new name, and I'm moving out. All right, so it, it's something that is the overflow, a generous 
life, a truly generous life, is an overflow of the grace of God. And then we looked the next week at the, further on in chapter 8, and we said this, that generosity, it's not a matter of law. It's a matter of love. It's, it's not how much you give. It's not how generous you are. It's why you're generous. What's going on? What is the heart of the matter for you as it comes to generosity? The opportunities we have to give, they're arranged by God. So some have much, some have little. Regardless of what we have, we said generosity impacts, or should impact, by its very definition, how we live. As Paul's talking about two churches here. The, the Macedonian church, where Philippi is, and Thessalonica, and he says, look, they, this church, the Macedonians, they had an abundance of joy. And they didn't have anything. Poverty and affliction. And then the Corinthian church he's writing to, they, they have an, their abundance is in means. And, and yet, they're chasing after this joy. He's going to, in the last half of chapter 8, we're, we're not going to look at it, but I'll tell you what's happening. Paul writes to him and says, hey, listen, I'm going to send a few guys. I'm going to send Titus, I'm going to send a famous preacher, and I'm going to send another godly guy. And they're going to come before me. They're, they're going to arrive before I get there. And th their purpose is a couple of fold. One is that they're going to come and they're going to, they're going to help you get back on track. I mean, you said you wanted to do this. I believe that you want to do this. I know that you want to do this. You're not doing it, though. So these guys are going to come. They're going to help them get uh, situated. They're going to help them put things in order. And they're also there as the financial accountability. It's three guys. They're going to handle the money. They're going to, this is going to be a big lump sum as they gather from all the churches to take to Jerusalem, this Jerusalem project, the relief of the of the poor in the midst of the famine and persecution, the, the ground zero of the gospel there in Jerusalem. And Paul's been going to all these churches, and he says, hey, look, I, I'm not the one carrying the money. You, you can trust that the process is full of integrity and accountability. And as these guys come, they, they come to, to coach them. They need encouragement. They need Counsel. You, what we're going to find is they need more than emotion. They need more than tension. They, they need more uh, intention. They need more than a feeling. It says if you rely on emotion as the fuel of generosity, then Paul knows this. You won't do it when you won't feel it. When you don't feel it. That they needed a plan to sort of undergird this promise that they made. And Paul wanted their willingness in doing it to match their willingness and desiring. And so if you'd look with me, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 1. And we'll read a few verses and then we'll, we'll talk about them. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 1. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, which is Corinth, that they've been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. This is an interesting thing. We find out in chapter 8, Paul's 
telling about the master. I want you to know about the grace of God. Uh, this, this is what it looks like as the grace of God comes pouring out, overflowing in our lives. It looks like the Macedonian church. And here Paul's saying, hey, Corinth, I was telling the Macedonian church about you, your desire when you heard this. And man, they were stirred to zeal. Verse 3, I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find out that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you being so confident, so assured. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an extraction. See, in verse 1, we see right there that the problem isn't with their desire to give. That the problem's with them actually parting with their money. I mean, that they're afraid that it would, it's going to be a loss. I mean, they, they give some of their money away. They devote some of their time. They'd be losing something. Looking yesterday at, a, at the Berkeley Review, I came across it as I was studying for this. And there's a guy, J.D. Trout, and he, and he writes this. In fact, the title of his article, the, the, the paper that he wrote, is called More Than a Feeling. And he says this, listen to this. Empathy is a sweet impulse, sure enough. Through it, people experience the suffering of others and are led to selfless, often breathtaking acts of clarity. Thanks to our empathetic instincts, pictures of people in discomfort induce pain in viewers. Our empathy motivates us to help the more vulnerable fellow human beings among us, the hungry and the sick. Yet, empathy will only get us so far. No matter how much you may empathize with a need, ultimately your decision to give comes down to whether you feel like you can make a donation without harming your own well-being. See, we also disconnect the future. We tend to value the money we have today more than a slightly greater amount we'll have later. And so, we find it easier to make those in need wait until next year when you, have, uh, when you expect to have more money. But given the impulse for immediate gratification, this will always be the case. You will always feel that you don't have enough to give. What's important to the one in need, however, is whether you actually do have enough to give, not whether you feel like you have enough to give. Those in need don't need a potential donor's empathy. After all, they need the donor's actual generosity. Hear what he said? This is a secular journal. I don't have any reason to believe the guy's writing necessarily from a Christian perspective. But he's saying, look, empathy, emotion, a feeling, it's only going to get you so far. It's not the right fuel to sustain intention. Emotion will not sustain intention. Paul's saying in verse 1, look, it's superfluous. You don't need another explanation. You don't need another inspiring story. I don't need to come back with all the missionary slides and tell you about the need. Well, listen, what appeals to emotion? That's good. It's good. But it doesn't need to or shouldn't need to be continually conjured up. 
Take what emotionally moves you. And then work it out reasonably. Reason your decision to act. See, Paul doesn't want an emotional decision that requires a constant stirring of emotions. It would be, he says, superfluous, exceeding what's reasonable. Paul knows that emotions do not sustain action. Emotion won't bring a thing to completion. I mean, we've all been watching the Olympics, right? I mean, folks have dedicated their lives. I mean, many of them put lives on hold to get up at, at unspeakable hours of the morning and to have diets that none of us would want to have and to, and to work and to push their bodies and their minds to extremes so that they can stand on this world stage you know, that was four years away. And although they have trophy cases full of, of accomplishments, the one they desire is this medal that happens at the Olympics. And they do these profiles, and they, you, know, you hear all their stories, and all they've given up, all they've sacrificed. But not once do you hear a guy you know, at the end of the race go, you know, they while I'm here, I saw this Gatorade commercial. It was really inspiring when I was eight. And so that really, you know, that's kind of sustained me all the way, and I'm here. Or, you know, I saw Michael Jordan's Just Do It commercial. So I bought myself a pair of Jordan skips, and I've been wearing them every day since. That's why I'm here. I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, emotion's great. I love those commercials. It won't sustain you. Because when the feeling's gone, so are we. Emotion needs a, needs a strategy, a robust strategy. That's what Paul's talking about. You know, the New Year's resolutions, that's why they're intentions. They're not a reality for most people. That there's a difference we're going to see between readiness and being ready. In verse 2, notice the word. Paul speaks of their readiness. It's a word that means that they were eager. They, they had zeal. They, um, the, the, the event came up. The opportunity came along. And, they, and man, they were hot after it. It was, a, it was an emotional Their interest had been ignited. Emotions stirred. And they pledged to Paul. Yeah, they, that deal, we're all in on that deal. Now if you look at the end of verse 2, at the end of verse 3, in the middle of verse 4, you see a word ready. This is in the ESV. It's in the same way in most translations. But it is a different Greek word. In verse 2, saying, Achaia has been ready since last year. Verse 3, that you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready. If they find you're not ready, we'd be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. See, the first word, it, it has to do with intention or action or a frame of, of mind. I want to do this. The second word has to do with action. In verse 4, four Paul speaks of their confidence, their assurance. In verse 5, he speaks of the, of the promise they made. The Corinthians, however, were in danger of being all talk, no action. They were caught up in the moment, but the moment was gone. The, the desire was there, the intention was there, the feeling was gone. 
And Paul had even directed them in a strategy. So if you don't, you don't have to turn there, but if you wanted to make a note, if you looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and the first letter we have from Paul there, he tells them about it. So he's, he's told them about the, 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 the Jerusalem project. He's told them about the, the relief for the saints in, in, in Judea. They said, man, we want to do this. Paul says, okay, here's how you do it. And he tells them, listen, the first day of the week, put something aside. And then do it every first day of the week until I, I come back. So when I come back, you, 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 there's something to give. You said, okay, we've done this. There's been a plan. It's been intentional. We, we, we disciplined ourselves to it. It was, it was regular. So, so we don't come back, and now all of a sudden we have to conjure it all up again. This is what you want to do. Paul gave him a plan. I might say it this way. I think there's four kinds of generosity. The first one I'd call occasional generosity. And there's mixed reasons for this. So sometimes um, it's guilt that, that drives it. Sometimes it's opportunity. But more likely, however, not to give occasional, uh, occasionally generous people. There's very little benefit towards spiritual growth. I'd liken it to this way. I'd like it, you know, so, so it's like working out two or three times a year. I mean, you can wake up and you say, man, I've just totally had it with myself. And you go and you work out and you do it for an hour. And you think, great, I'm, I'm good for about three months. I mean, no, there's very little benefit. It doesn't change anything. Nothing's, nothing's fundamentally changed on the inside. In fact, uh, a guy named Christian Smith, in his book, Paradox of Generosity, he says this uh, about generosity. It has to be a practice. It has to be something that's sustained over time that people engage with regularly. One-off things just don't affect us that much, whereas things we repeat, things we sustain in our behavior and our, in our minds, they have a tremendous effect on us. The empirical evidence was very clear. They did, they did this study. So nothing we tested where you just do it one time has an effect. But all the things that you have to sustain over time, they have an effect. Essentially, you, you won't do it when you don't feel it. That's an occasionally generous person. The next one I would talk about is a sporadic generosity. And the way I define this is when surplus meets need or emotion. And you have to have both surplus and need, or surplus and emotion. Without surplus, the, the emotion just leads to, man, I sure wish I could, but, but I can't. You, you come with, on the one hand, this, this satisfaction if you participate with being a part of something, a solution. And if you can't, disappointment with not being able to participate. But there's no real plan, there's little spiritual growth, it's emotion dependent, and it's generally self-focused. The, the third one, and I think this is what Paul is speaking to, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, is systematic generosity. It's decided. It, there's, it's disciplined. It, it's occasionally sacrificial, but, but it's not dependent on feeling or, or emotion. It's, it's often in spite of feeling or emotion or convenience. It's oftentimes self-denying, whether it's financially or, or with your time or, or some other 
resource or talent or experience that you have. And then there's this fourth category that that really the Macedonians, they fit into it. You'd call it sacrificial generosity. So emotion meets discipline. Emotion meets with a plan. Emotion meets with a decision that's already been made. It's not necessarily giving out of, out of a surplus, but it's giving beyond what's planned. It, but in the realm of prepared, it, it's God-directed, not emotion Driven. It's God dependent. See, as you look through the Bible and you see what the Bible has to say about money and what we do with money and generosity, I mean, the joy is found in the last two systematic generosity, sacrificial generosity. In fact, I'll tell you one note about sacrificial generosity. At this time in Corinth, um, it's likely that a third of the church in Corinth uh, were slaves uh, who had become believers. And so when Paul goes and he talks to the Corinthian church, he says, hey, look, there's this Jerusalem project, and we want to uh, relieve the, the, the saints in Judea, and a third of this church, the third who were slaves, said, yeah, I want to, and I'm in on that. I want to do that. And as you read the history about Corinth and you read about first century slave history, you realize they, the only means, the, the only thing that they would have been able to give would have been out of their savings. And the only thing that a slave saved for in the first century was to purchase his freedom. And so for them to say, yeah, I want to be a part of that. And to say, okay, I'm going to take some out of my savings. Out of my savings to buy my freedom. It means I'm going to prolong my slavery. I'm going to put off my freedom. I mean, that, that's sacrificial giving. They felt led by God to do it. You know, I'd say as an aside on this, spiritual growth, the, the Christian life, this thing we call growing in Christ or discipleship, it needs fuel other than emotion. So I think many believers make the mistake that, listen, emotion is spiritual growth. That discipleship by emotion is what so many people pursue, dependent upon emotions stirred or feelings or, you know, ch chasing after the, the, the next thing. And the reality is, I mean, we could just take a cursory glance at Paul through the New Testament. Paul's ministry had greater sus substance. Paul's life, Paul's spiritual life, his growth in Christ, it was made of far greater substance than emotion could provide. I mean, Paul was a passionate man. He was as emotional as he was theologically precise. And yet, Paul's ministry, his, his life, his spiritual growth, it, it, it wasn't on a course of chasing emotional highs and goosebump moments. I mean, listen, Paul knew the deep moments of sorrow and suffering and persecution and 
waking up in the morning and thinking, man, I just don't feel this. My body is tired and my mind is tired. Everything seems to be pressing in on me. He wasn't dependent upon emotion to pursue his, his love for Christ. I gave you two examples. One has to do with the Corinthians. It's amazing to me that he didn't give up on the Corinthians. If you were here the first week, I talked about how complex and messy their relationship was. I mean, it's amazing that this letter we have isn't about three verses long where it says, hey, I'm Paul, an apostle of, of um, Jesus, uh, farewell, Corinth, goodbye, Paul. I mean, it's amazing he didn't give up on them. I mean, it's amazing he didn't say, look, that's, that, that, listen, it would be much easier to write them off, too much trouble, too much time, too little results. But he didn't. I mean, Paul cared for them deeply. He, he gave his life to them. He wanted more for them. He endured unbearable hardships because of them. And he didn't give up on them. He, he was publicly shamed by them. He didn't give up on them. I mean, he wanted them to grow in the grace of God and was willing to pour himself out, was willing to be made a fool if it meant that only meant that they would know the love of Jesus more. Another example of it, I'll tell you about the Jerusalem Project a little bit. There's really more to the Jerusalem Project than meets the eye. I mean, so the Spirit of God burdened Paul with the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And so he committed to following God in that ministry. In fact, it became one of Paul's highest priorities. He, he talked about it to all the churches, all the Gentile churches outside of Judea. Hey, listen, we, we want to we care for these people. But listen, it was about more than just relief for the poor. It was certainly about that. It was certainly about meeting the needs of the saints in, in Jerusalem and Judea that were in the midst of famine and persecution and about honoring the, the brothers and sisters in Christ who had lost so much because of their faith in order to the world around them might hear and believe the gospel. The Jerusalem Project was also about maybe chiefly about unity in the church. The, the Jews and the Gentiles. The, the Gentiles giving and the Jews receiving. They're not being a division and, and lines in the body of Christ. It was about the health of the church. And listen, Paul wasn't sure how it would turn out. In fact, he told the church, he said, listen, pray for me. Pray for the moment that when I get to Jerusalem and I hand the gift to this Jewish church, to the Jews that in Jerusalem that, that love Jesus, that they're the founder of this whole gospel ministry by the Spirit of God, pray for the moment that I give this, that it would be acceptable and accepted. Then it would show we're not two different churches. We're one church. One body of Christ. 
And in that, I want you to hear. The gift to Jerusalem came at great cost to Paul. Emotionally, physically, and in the end, here, here's how it turned out. It was his trip to Jerusalem to take that collection to the church that ended in him being arrested and ultimately carried to Rome in chains and to be martyred by the emperor. I mean, listen, Paul's plans, that they were to go to Rome as a missionary, headed to Spain. God knew he would arrive in Rome as a prisoner awaiting execution. And yet Paul never begrudges that part of his ministry. He doesn't get to Rome in chains, settled in his jail cell, picks up a pen and writes Philippi and says, man, I can't believe this. All my plans... Man, I could have already been in Spain by now if I hadn't stopped to go to Jerusalem. My plans were to take the gospel far and wide. But here I am. No, you know what? He never begrudges that ministry. He doesn't begrudge the outcome. He doesn't begrudge the things in his life that they didn't go as they had planned because it was from Rome that he does sit down and does write the Philippian church. And the song he sings to them is, I will rejoice because it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. But that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life, or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But Paul knew the reality of what he wrote in verse 5, chapter 9 to the Corinthians that the gift you promised, so that it would lead, so that it may be ready as a, as a willing gift, the word is blessing, not as an extraction. Because the act of giving is itself part of the gift. Generosity means freely and willfully and joyfully giving your life and trusting God to do what He's going to do. We were talking this week. I was talking with Eric, who's the campus pastor um, at the downtown campus and preaches every week and, and talk to Mark who's the campus pastor in White House who they're both this morning preaching this passage part three of living generously I said well how's it going I mean what what do you think I mean how, how's it being received and it was great I, I think I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, what they said next week, particularly what Mark said, it was, uh, it was so fascinating. But we were talking about it, and so here's what I would ask you this morning. How, it, so you're here this morning, or you've been here two weeks, or you've been here all three weeks. So let me ask you this morning. How is God speaking to you about Generosity about your life. I'll offer a few things here that I hope that we would hear. 
one. So we need a bigger picture, a better dream for the things we have. The things we have are only as valuable as what we choose to do with them and to spend them on. I mean, generous people, they have a bigger picture, a better dream for their resources, something bigger than, than using them all on themselves. God, Joshua Becker writes this book, The More of Less. He says, generous people find meaning outside of their possessions. It's the American way to wrap up self-worth into net worth. As if a person's value could ever be tallied on a balance sheet. Generous people find their value in helping others and quickly realize that their bank statement says nothing about their value. Albert Einstein, of all people, the true value of a man resides in what he gives, not in what he accumulates. Now, as the church, we would say, listen, they're almost right. I mean, the true value, the, the true value for the believer is it's not even in what you give, it's what you have received from God, the grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And the truth is, if that's the foundation you have, if, that, if, if we have that perspective, if, if, that, if that has taken hold of our heart, if that has gripped us, then all the things that come and go in our life, it's not where our meaning is. It's not where our value is. We are, we are one day, we'll give an account, you know what, every one of us, every one of us, say, man, the value wasn't in keeping the stuff. I'd say this too. We need to see that we have more than resources, more resources to give than just money. We have more to be generous with than just financial resources. We have time and talents, experience, lessons learned. Generous people think about life beyond their money, and you and you invest in the lives of of others. And I'll tell you that that can be even a more difficult step. It's easier. It's easier to write a check. It's quite a different thing to give my life away, particularly when I don't feel it and it's inconvenient. There's a couple more I think I'd love for us to get hold of, the reality that, that life is short. I mean, Second, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. That we'd walk in the good works prepared for us by God beforehand. All these things God's prepared for us. This is our shot at it. This is when we walk in that. And, and life is short. This, this life. Two more, we'd be content to live with less. So by definition, whole life generosity 
requires level of contentment. Because the reality is you give away. You give away resources. You give away time. It means another, to other people, it means you'll have less. And so you, contentment is a foundation. I mean, so what if this? What if contentment's actually found in the opposite place that we've always been looking? What if contentment is not found in accumulating more, but actually found in giving more? And the last one I'd say, and near the end, the joy that we desire is not found in the pursuit of comfort. The, the joy we really desire. The one that was created in us. It's not found in comfort. The Corinthians cornered the market on comfort. The Macedonian church, Paul says, they were poor, they were afflicted, they were persecuted. They had an abundance of joy. Hebrews chapter 12, 1, verses 1 and 2. keeps coming to my mind. I think, I've, I think I've probably recited this verse the last six times I've preached it. I can't get over it. It says, let us run the race with endurance. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus. So run with endurance the race. Now, look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What's the endurance look like? Consider Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and shame. The joy we desire is not found in the pursuit of comfort. You know, the main idea this morning, I hope it's been, is that generosity, whole life, it's more than a feeling. Emotion doesn't sustain intentions. Something greater than emotion has to work itself out in our lives to bring it to reality. And the good news this morning is that the truth about generosity, the truth about that, it can be traced all the way back to the source. True generosity, the true grace, it finds its source in God's generosity. That's how Paul began this whole discussion in chapter 8, verse 1. And listen, God planned the generosity, this grace poured out through Jesus from before the foundations of the world. He prepared it from the beginning, from, from before the beginning. Then the plan. He, he planned to redeem sinful and rebellious and poor and, and broken humanity. You and me. He planned it from beforehand. And then it systematically unfolded from the garden to Noah to Abraham through Abraham's genealogy until the time, until the right time 
God's grace became visible and tangible and touchable. When a teenage girl and her overwhelmed fiancé witnessed the birth of the Son of God in the midst of the broken world, and for some 33 years, Jesus beat a path to the cross. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He, he became poor, so that through His poverty you might become Rich. Here's, here's what happens on the cross. Here, here's how the grace, the generosity of God's poured out. How does Jesus come to us? The poor, the, how does he come to us in our need? He, how does he meet our deepest need? How does God's grace redeem us from, from death? And so much of the oppression and so much of them. Everything. It's our fault. How can he wipe all the evil out without wiping us out in the process? It's on the cross. He, he came to make us rich because he became poor. He can free us because he became oppressed. He can make us alive because he, he became dead. That's God's generosity. One writer, I'll quote this, will be done. So this is the reason that Paul can say, I, I'm not commanding you. Do, do you know why he's saying that? He says, if, if you know what Jesus did for you if, you, if you know the future that he secured for you, then you'll want to do this. He says, hey, look, if you don't want to do this, if you don't experience joy and generosity, I'm not going to tell you to. I'm not going to say, do it anyway. Instead, go and look at the foundation of life, of your foundation. Find out whether God is your vendor or your Savior. Look to see whether you're relating to Him to, to get Him to serve you, or if you're in a relationship with Him and, and serve Him out of love and grateful joy for what His Son Jesus did. See, Christ is the unique treasure. He's your unique treasure. Paul cries out at the end of 2 Corinthians 9, Thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift, His indescribable gift, Jesus. See, Jesus is the ultimate gift. He's the ultimate treasure. And here's why He's so ultimate. Every other treasure you have to purchase... Jesus is the only treasure that's purchased you. What have you given your life to? If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time and your word this morning. I, I pray especially that the words spoken And the words heard this morning, Father, they, not that they'd be apart from emotion, but that they would be received as more than that. Father, that our minds would be engaged, our hearts would be engaged, that we would hear clearly 
the truth of the gospel of your son Jesus, your grace, your generosity poured through your son who became poor so that we might become rich. Who stepped into humanity. Who took on flesh. Who took on the Creator. Stepped into His creation. And Father, He did more than that. He, he stepped into our place. He, he took upon Himself. My sin. My rebellion. My death. He took my place on the cross of shame that was meant for me. He became poor that I might become rich. He, he died with all that I am and was raised to life, to new life, a glorious body and turns and offers me, offers us. All that He is. To clothe us in His perfection and righteousness and grace. So Father, I pray we'd be moved by that, but I pray more than moved. Father, I pray we'd be changed. And only You can do that. And so we ask that You'd change us. That we become more and more like Your Son Jesus. More and more conformed into the image of Jesus. Father, that's how we pray. The only way we can in the name of the strong and mighty, gracious, generous, majestic, holy name of Jesus. And through the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.